If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of 1 John. And if you don't own a Bible or didn't bring one with you, the black Bibles in the seats around you would be the English Standard Version that I'm using up here. And you can find 1 John chapter 3 on page 960. Our scripture passage for today will begin in verse 13 and then continue all the way to the, the end of the chapter. So if you're new to using the Bible, there'll be these larger bold print numbers. Those are the chapter numbers. And then there's these small verse numbers that help us all read along and follow along together. I want to point something out before I read the text, and it's in the text itself. Drop your eyes down to verse 19 and following. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'm going to read the whole passage in context, but I wanted to point out in the introductory comments here that it seems like John has two people in mind that he's referring to in that text specifically. People whose hearts are condemning them, and then people who have confident assurance. Perhaps the majority of you in this room fall into one of those two categories, and I'd like to just point that out from the beginning. Some of you here today are Christians. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard the good news of the gospel. You've repented of your sin, been baptized, and you've been walking with Jesus, but your heart condemns you. John does not go on to elaborate all of the reasons why, but let's just acknowledge that he is acknowledging there are people in the Christian church that feel very insecure about their salvation. Then there's another group of people, and those are the people that are not being condemned in their hearts, and they have confidence before God. Now, if you're here as a guest or a visitor today, meaning you're not a member of embassy, maybe you're here for the first or second time, maybe you know yourself right now to not be a believer in Jesus, not a Christian. If that's you, I want you to know that I am still talking to you too. I'm hoping that this will be a benefit to you to help you understand really the essence of what a Christian is all about. And we're going to get to the heart of the Christian message in this message today. But I want all of you to know that I have these two categories in mind because John does. Those of you that are struggling with security of your salvation and those of you that are confident And I believe this text and the entire book of 1 John is to bring all of us into that second category, confidence before the throne of God above. That's the aim, and my hope is that this might be one of those sermons for some of you in this room you desperately needed to hear so that your confidence as you stand before God would be rooted in God, not yourself. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's follow along as I read, starting in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, 
that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given We'll pause there and, Lord willing, pick up next week in chapter 4. So that'll end our, our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. My prayer for us is that we would find true faith, true hope, and true love in Christ alone. Amen? True faith, true hope, and true love. I believe our passage summarizes each of these virtues, these core Christian elements, faith, hope, and love, as 1 Corinthians 13 is so often used in weddings. Maybe you've heard of the most well-known chapter in the Bible, love is patient and kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-seeking, it does not seek after its own gain. True faith, true hope, and true love. That's how I'd like to summarize the key ideas taken away from our passage. Let me see if before getting into the details, you all can just get a brief bird's eye overview with me. Let's break it down into 13 and 15. That's the first little section. 16 and 18, and then 19 and 24. Look at the first section, 13 and 15. He says, we know. And what does he say that we know? We know we have eternal life, evidenced by our love for our brothers. So I am going to summarize this as true hope. True hope of eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life and have hope now and for eternity, evidenced by love. Section 2, verses 16 to 18. We know love. Not just the evidence of our hope, which is love. We know what love is because he laid down his life. This is the essence of true love. Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, the essence of true love 
is not only the gospel act of Christ dying on the cross for sinners, but that would be any of us reflecting his true love in our actions of laying down our lives for others. That's section two. And then third and finally, 19 to 24, notice it begins similar to these other two sections. We know something. We can be confident. And this is in the future tense. We, we shall know in the future. We will know what though? We will know that we are of the truth by, and then you keep reading, by our obedience to a single command. In the singular, there's a command and it's love one another. True faith is expressed by love for one another. Now, it's jumbled in order. We started with hope, moved to love, and faith. I'm going to take the 1 Corinthians 13 order. I think because it's how we experience our Christian life, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So we'll start at the end, we'll move to the beginning, and we'll save the middle meat for our conclusion. The love of God for us in Christ, laying down his life for us, which holds the whole thing together. Not just the text or the sermon, but everything in all of existence is being held together by the resurrected, ascended, loving Lord who laid down his life for us. So let's take them one at a time and realize that true faith, true hope, and true love will only ever be known through selfless, sacrificial service. First, true faith. Look again at verses 19 to 24. We can know that we are of the truth. Why? Because of our obedience to his commandments. But those commandments are repeated in the singular. True faith in Jesus Christ is synonymous with loving one another in this paragraph. Look very carefully at verses 21 and following. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, why would we have confidence before God? Why would we be confident that we are of the truth and be reassured when we stand before him? That's that phrase in verse 19. We're going to stand before the presence of God. Now, now why is he thinking that? You have to go back two sermons, but just look in your Bibles. You'll see verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, abide in Jesus Christ so that when Christ appears, you will have confidence. Do you see how that language of confidence has already been introduced? Preparing you for the second coming of Jesus. That you will not shrink back in shame when he comes, but you will be confident when you stand before the throne of God. And so now in this final paragraph of this section that began in verse 28 and continues all the way to the end of chapter 3, he, he returns to what he started with. In light of the resurrected, ascended Lord, who will return one day, I want you all children, believers, to be confident. I want you to be confident not in your works, not in your performance, not in your feelings. I want you to be confident in God. I want you to be confident in God. Put your faith in God. Because we should have this confidence when we keep his commandments, plural. Look at verse 22. We keep his commandments, plural, and do what pleases him. That should give you confidence. That should be evidence that you are a true Christian. But then notice the transition from verse 22 to verse 23. In this singular is his 
commandment, not plural. And I think he's driving home the point. He's bringing things together in a way to make things really simple and clear for us. Let's boil it all down. And so if we're going to take this paragraph and say, I want to really track what John's doing, I think you need to see the transition from commandments to commandment as his way of very clearly saying, this is the point. The commandment is this. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And love one another. All right, John, which one is it? Is it believe or is it love? Now, you all know that John was friends with Jesus, like knew him, sat under him, learned from him, discipled by him. A student becomes like his teacher, mimics him. I think he's doing that, but making a slightly different point from when Jesus was asked. John may have even witnessed this. Hey, teacher, some people asked Jesus, what's the greatest of all the commandments in the Bible? And he says, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the very first time in the entire Bible that we're commanded to love God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus says it's not only the first time you're commanded to love God, it's the first importance of commandments. First and foremost, Deuteronomy 6. That's how Jesus answers. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, and the second commandment is like it. Wait, Jesus, we we wanted one command, not two. We asked for one singular command. He says, I'm giving you two because to love God will necessitate loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, which Nate Fader just read for us a few minutes ago. So which is it, Jesus? Is it love for God or is it love for your neighbor? Which is the greatest commandment? And he says, you cannot separate those two. You cannot say that you love God and hate your neighbor because that neighbor is God's possession. It's his his creation. It would be like you saying, I love Phil Howell. I bet, oh, thanks. I hate your wife and children. What? We're not going to be friends anymore. It's just not going to go well between me and you. We need to work that out. What's, What's the deal? My wife's amazing. That's what my phone says every time she calls. Amazing wife. I'd like you all to get on the same page with me. She's amazing. Amen. Indeed. Do you get what John's doing here then? It's very similar to what he learned from his master, Jesus. You should have confidence before God when you stand before the throne because you're keeping his commandments. All right, but what are his commandments? What are you specifically referring to? I'm referring to believing and loving, and they are two separate verbs, believe and love, but they are smashed together. If you really believe in Jesus, you really believe that he's the son of God, resurrected and ascended, then you will love. You will love one another. They're synonymous with each other. And this is all to try and help you have confidence that if you have love for one another, then you truly believe. And if you truly believe, then you will love. They go hand in hand. You cannot believe in the name of Jesus and then not want to obey Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior and Master. I submit and obey him. All right, be baptized. No, don't want to do that. Not interested in obeying Jesus' first sequential commandment. Repent, believe, be baptized. No thanks. 
It's not that baptism saves you. It's just odd for you to say, I bow down to Lord Jesus, and then he says, so then be baptized. Unite yourself to me. No thanks. That's the way to understand the commandments of Jesus, a submissive heart that has been humbled by the immensity of the love that has been laid down for you will demonstrate itself in saying, your life is mine. My life is yours. I like this deal and I will give you everything, full submission. That's the posture of a Christian. So therefore, we need to realize that true faith, right here in verse 23, believing, that's the word for faith, Believing in the name and all that represents God is his son. Believing in the name, that's an Old Testament phrase, by the way, in the name, the name of God. It's a huge theological thing that's being impregnated here. Do you believe in who God is and all of his character? Well, if you do, you, you trust in him, you rely upon him. Well, he's revealed himself most clearly in Jesus Christ. And faith in him necessitates love. That's, I think, the key idea. But now let's go back to where we started in the sermon, because this section gives incredible help for those of you that are struggling with assurance of your salvation or insecurities that, well, I don't know. I'm looking at my life. Nate got up earlier, and he led us in a prayer of confession. And yeah, I don't love the poor like I should. I sometimes wonder if God really loves me. How could he love me? These are things that condemn us, thoughts of condemnation, judging ourselves, evaluating ourselves, and thinking, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Notice the way John gently and pastorally instructs those of you that are struggling with those things. And if you are currently not struggling, learn from John right now how to give counsel to those that are sitting around you and are struggling. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And persuade is another way to translate the word reassure. Have you ever thought about that? Your heart needs persuasion. We persuade our hearts to have confidence before him. And when your heart condemns you, verse 20, here's how you persuade your heart. Lesson number one. Get your eyes off of your heart and into heaven. Look at God. That's what he does. I'm not making this up. If we're reading the text slowly, meditatively, breaking down how it's structured in its sentence, because for whenever you have a heart that's guilty, feeling shame, you're shrinking back, you might throw away the faith, you're not sure, am I really all in on this Jesus thing? Is Jesus really in all in on me? God is greater than your heart. That's what he says. He wants you to consider the greatness of God, how big God is. Right now on the Spotify playlist is the City of Light song, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And that's what we're listening to in the car with my young children. Sounds so simple and childlike. But I wonder how many of us need to go back to school to the basics. 
Their God is so big. He's so strong and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do for you. Do you realize that John's solution here is for you when your heart condemns you with the guilt of sin, with persecution? Does he mention earlier in the text? Sometimes people are going to hate us because we have associated ourselves with Jesus. And you might, in the throes of that persecution, in the heat of the battle, want to think, is it worth it? And in those moments, he says, look to heaven and consider the greatness of God even in your faltering, weak heart. He knows everything. Why would he say that? He knows everything. Because he knows you better than you. He knows just how weak your heart is. He knows every single secret sin that you've never confessed. He knows it all. Everything. And he still died for you. He still loves you. What was your assurance of pardon from Romans chapter 5 earlier in the service? We've confessed our sins. How can we be confident that he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins? Because while we were sinners, not while we were righteous, he died for us. Do you see the logic here? You can have confidence before God when you know that the God who knows everything is greater than the faltering failures of your fickle heart. So look to heaven. May that be the primary way of encouragement Discipler to disciplee when somebody says, I'm struggling with assurance of salvation. Let's think much of God. Let's consider his greatness. Let's get your eyes off of your heart and let's make sure that we're understanding God accurately and correctly. He knows you fully and he still loves you. We have confidence before him because of the love that we have for one another. Some scholars believe that the transition between 20 and 21 is that he's suggesting that there are those who are struggling with assurance, and then when he moves to 21, he's saying, but beloved, if you take the pill that I'm giving you as your antidote to your wavering heart, look to God and his greatness, look to his omniscience, realize that he still loves you, he's still with you and for you, then, beloved, our hearts will not condemn us. We will have confidence before God. I think that that's plausible. He's assuming you'll take the instruction, receive it, believe, and have confidence in God and not in yourself. I like to illustrate this when I'm talking to someone, whether they don't know anything about the Christian faith, so I'm doing evangelism, or for you. I think it's helpful. Faith is about the surety of the object and its strength, and not the amount of faith that you have. Do you understand the difference between walking out on ice that's really thin? Oh yeah, it got cold after it was 60 this week and then gonna be 70 this next week. Here's the world we live in. And so if there was like a, a thin covering of snow and ice and you're like, I'm really confident it's gonna hold me. It doesn't matter how much faith you have, your object is weak. You're gonna fall through, you're gonna get wet. Now, let's go back to January. Do you all remember when it was like negative 15 with a wind chill and it was cold for a solid week and then the ice was thick 
and those ponds and rivers and lakes. You could be so timid and trepid and wondering, oh, is it going to hold me? Is it going to hold me? It doesn't matter how weak your faith is. If the object is solid, then you'll step out even with weak, trembling knees and legs, and it'll hold. That's my question and challenge to all of you. Do you realize that John's encouragement to say, look at the objective nature of your faith. Look at the substance that holds. It's God. It's God and his grace. Look to Jesus Christ. Here's the commandment. Believe in Jesus. All that Jesus is for you. Put your faith in him. And when that faith bears fruit, it will produce love. And that love should multiply the evidences that you have. Not only do you have a God in heaven who is for you and not against you, but on top of that, that spirit that goes in you will start producing and manifesting the very love that God has given you. And that will help compound the assurance you should have, which brings us to point two. True faith expresses itself in love and should give you assurance of your salvation. Point two, back to the beginning, verses 13 to 15. True faith then produces love that abides with hope in the Spirit. Notice the link with the very last verse. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments, they abide in God, and God abides in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit, the Spirit that has been given to you. The Spirit has been given to you as a gift. You didn't earn this. It's a free gift. Therefore, you believe, and God grants you the Spirit through the faith. And through this, we bear good fruit. So then if we drop our eyes back up, to verse 13, point two, true faith produces true hope even when the world hates us. Don't be surprised by it, brothers. Don't be astonished. You could translate this. Brothers and sisters, he means both, not just to the men in the congregation. Brothers, sisters, believers in the Lord Jesus, you should not be surprised that the world is going to hate you. The world runs after the things of this world. Christians run after eternal life. They've put their hope all in the Jesus basket. And because of that, the world gets convicted like Cain was convicted of Abel's righteousness that was referenced in verses 11 and 12. Because his deeds were evil, Cain murdered his brother, but also because Abel's deeds were righteous. Now remember, Cain and Abel, they're in a church service Loosely speaking, they're, they're presenting offering before God. They're biological brothers, but they're also being used here as a metaphor for two types of people that are inside of a worship gathering of the one true God. As they go to the throne of God and present an offering, they're both believers. They're both worshipers. But how do you know one is the true worshiper versus the false worshiper? Well, one of them ends up murdering the other one. That's the short end of the story. He's saying, don't be surprised when you find even somebody that is in your own believing community, which they were experiencing this as we studied in chapter 2. People that were among the Christian community and then left the Christian community. And this text tells us they didn't just say, guys, I don't believe in what you're believing anymore. They are persecuting they are perhaps being violent. I think there's good reason to think that that's why he's giving these instructions. I want you, in the face of se severe persecution, to not shrink back. 
to continue to hold on, have hope. Don't be surprised that the world would hate you. They hated Jesus. This is where David's reading from John 15 is just ringing in the background. If they hated the master, how much more? The servants. So then we should expect that if we give our lives in faith to Jesus and that faith produces love, the world will have mixed reactions. At times they'll be like, oh, that's so great. You're so kind and loving. You turn the other cheek. And then at other times they're going to be, I cannot stand these Christians. They're just a bunch of bigots. They hate and then fill in the blank of the number of things we've been accused of because we just stand firm on the word of God. I don't expect that to lessen at all. So Embassy Church, realize that faith in Jesus produces a love that the world does not understand or know. And in fact, at times, they will love it, but then they will also hate it. And here, the emphasis is on the hate. And sometimes those people are actually claiming to be some kind of religious person or Christian, doing in the name or the honor of God as Jesus predicted. Verse 14 says, but we know this. We have this confidence. We have this assured hope that we are those who have passed out of death and into eternal life, which is what he's about to say in the next sentence. So he's talking not just about any general life. He's talking about life unto the age, life for eternity, life that begins now in the moment of our faith and continues through our hope in Jesus Christ. And we can know this. We've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Faith is sometimes subjective, where your heart might condemn you or assure you. And so we could talk about our first point, the experience of faith, but now we have the evidence of hope, the fruit of faith, love. Notice the relationship between point one and point two. He is not saying, if you love God and obey his commandments of love, then he will love you. That is not how this reads at all anywhere in the New Testament, Old Testament. That's unbiblical. That's that's works righteousness. That's not a gospel. The gospel, the good news, is that we pass out of death to life by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, the one who laid down our life for us. That faith in Jesus and our clinging to him by faith produces love fruits of salvation. And that fruit of salvation will be the very evidence to help reassure you and give you hope. So just ask yourself. And if you're struggling with this because your heart is especially heavy, you you have a very glass half empty kind of personality, please bring somebody else along to do this evaluation with you and ask, have you ever loved brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus? Sincerely, not to get something out of them, not a quid pro quo, I love them so that they give me this back. You just, you sensed out of the overflow of God's love for you that you just, I want to, I want to serve, I want to love, I want to give, I want to be generous with my money, my time, my energy. Has that ever happened to you? If the answer is even a pathetic yes, let alone a, a grand yes every day, I'm walking in the spirit. Regardless of how great, do you have any of that love in you? He's saying, then you know. You know that that faith is solid. That faith is in the object of Jesus that has been poured out through the Spirit, and you have love for one another. So that should give you hope 
Not make you feel guilty. This is not a text to say, guys, let me wag my finger at you. He's saying, look at the love. Look at the way that some people deserted us and you stayed strong. Keep it up. I see the love that you have for one another. I see the way you'll protect each other. Joel Beek, he's a seminary president in Michigan. As he was preaching on this, I was listening to it while I was running. Okay, so picture this scene. I'm running, I'm listening with my headphones, and Joel Beakey's preaching on our text, and I'm like, I wonder how Joel would deal with this passage. He starts telling a story, and as he's telling the story, I'm like, ah, ah, whoa, because he starts sharing about a Turkey missionary that's selling Bibles illegally, and he starts getting tortured, and he goes into vivid detail. I was like, pulling off fingernails, hanging upside down, getting beaten. I will spare you the details, but just imagine me on a run, out loud, looking very idiotic. Ah! You know, no one knows what's going on, but that's me earlier this week. I share all that because I want you to realize that Joel Beek is telling us that there are times in the most severe of hatred toward Christians that people will not sell out for the sake of comfort. This was a story that happened just a couple decades ago. In modern Turkey, in severe persecution, a man selling Bibles gets caught, gets tortured, and every time they go to torture him, they say, sell out the rest of your brothers and sisters. He says, I will never sell out my brothers and sisters. I'd rather die for the name of Jesus than have them be harmed. You do whatever you need to do to me. I will never sell out. Eventually, they said he was insane. They threw him to the curb, and a woman who was a Christian found him picked him up, nursed him back to health. He told the story, and that's how we know it today. Do you see the love that comes into people's hearts? And even when the world is as ugly and as awful, that makes you want to scream and your skin crawl, you see the beauty of the gospel, people who have an otherworldly kind of love. Hope beyond comforts of this world. Hope beyond for eternal life abiding in them. True faith produces true hope. Both of them produce true love, point three. True love is the center of the Christian faith. And what is it? Love is used a lot, isn't it? In English, in your everyday conversations, it's used in music. Probably some of the best-selling songs are those that talk about love. Right now, the big debates are related to whether or not people should be able to just get along and love one another. What what is love? Here, John gives us the definitive answer. By this, we know not just what true faith is, not just what true hope and eternal life is, but love itself, the essence of love. God sent his son, and he, Jesus Christ, verse 16 says, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Isn't it interesting that the most well-known Bible verse, at least in my basic observation, is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. You've heard that one before? John 3.16. Well, how about 1 John 3.16? Also really solid. So whether it's a one before it or it's just John 3.16, you got the gospel In 1 John 3.16, by this we should know what true love is. 
It's when God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, living a perfect, innocent, spotless life, as was explained in just the previous paragraph. He is the perfect one. He willingly laid down his life. He, he put it down, you could translate. He gave it up. He, he didn't have his life accidentally, tragically taken from him. It wasn't one of these tragic, sad stories of a man who was really good, but, you know, the world's just an evil, broken place. The world's an evil, broken place, but this man, he knew it was coming. He could have done all kinds of things to stop it, and no one snatched that life from him. He laid it down in his own loving authority. True love is selfless. It's sacrificial. It hurts. It costs something. It's serving. If Jesus Christ does not love us in this way, then there is no and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There will be no possibility to make it happen. There will be no love in the Holy Spirit abiding in you. He first loved us, John's going to go on to say in the next chapter. Oh, Embassy Church, it's not just another Sunday, but in many ways it is just another Sunday. I hope that you're dialed in. God, objectively, historically, outside of the subjective nature of your heart, no matter how well you are feeling right now, God laid down his life for you. He loves you. He did this to demonstrate self-sacrificial service that had its at high point, the cross, with all of its excruciating pain. That missionary story of a man selling Bibles, he suffered. Jesus died. The man who sold Bibles, he was a sinner. Jesus was sinless. The man who had his life tortured and beaten for the sake of love, stayed and didn't give up. But he didn't do that for your sins. Do you understand the difference between somebody suffering as an act of love and somebody suffering as a substitute? In your place condemned, he stood. He took your spot. It should have been you and me on the cross. He laid down his life for us and this will be the best thing to reassure your hearts. Attach it to point number one. My heart condemns me. I can look to heaven and not only see that the God who reigns and rules knows everything, even all of my struggles and fears and failures and insecurities, but he also sees his son Jesus resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand. Currently, not right now, what is Jesus doing? Serving. He didn't just serve on the cross. He serves intercessory service every single day that you wake up. You can have confidence that outside of whether or not you woke up on the right side of the bed or the wrong side of the bed, guess who is still the same yesterday, today, and forever? The one who came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. In the present, active, continual, he will serve us. What kind of God does that? There is none. There is none in all of literature. There is none in every other world religion. Give the compare contrast. 
Have you have any doubts or struggles? Should we give up on this Jesus Christian thing? Well, what else are you going to go to? What other God will you put in its place? How else will you rectify the evil that is in the world? The Christian answer alone stands in stark contrast from every other option because of verse 16. Our God laid down his life in an act of humble service. I pray that all of you will remember the gospel throughout our weekly worship gatherings. It is not an accident that we call ourselves a gospel-centered church because it is difficult to read slowly through the Bible and not see that this is the logic of the Bible. True faith only comes when you have a true gospel. True hope that abides even in the midst of severe persecution has at its center true love. All of the angels of heaven could have taken him off of the cross, but in the greatest act of love that has ever been demonstrated, he did what? He stayed. He stayed silent. For you, for me. Do you feel unworthy? You are. That's why it's love. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's in your place. It's to serve you. John highlights here not only the objective event of God's love for us in Christ, laying down his life, but then points us forward to the example that it is. He is our substitute. Amen, Embassy Church? He died for you. That's the gospel. That faith in the true gospel produces love. It produces an otherworldly kind of love for other people that do not deserve to receive your love. But when you are drinking from the well of infinite love, you have unlimited resources to give love to your brothers and sisters. By this we know love. We know true love. We know the source of love. We know its immensity. It's liberal, not theologically or conservative liberal debates in politics. Liberal as in lavish. John 3.1, 1 John 3.1. See what love the Father has lavished on us, many translations have. It's lavish love. What is it? Lavish love by laying down a life for us. So then we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How could you possibly say you have faith in this God? This is the logic of verse 17. If you see your brother or sister in a need and you have at your disposal the goods of the world, yet you close your heart and you selfishly keep for yourself. Oh, these two things don't consistently happen over time. Those who drink from the well of Jesus, they pour out the generosity that Jesus showed to them. You can't go around and speak with words and talk that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I, I have a true faith. But there are no deeds that back them up. So little children, let us not love with empty, vain words. Let's demonstrate our faith and our hope by the synonymous belief in Jesus equals love for our brothers and sisters. Probably one of the more interesting stories that I've come across recently comes from the pastor, John Harper. He was having a flourishing ministry in London, and he 
was on his way to none other than Chicago, Illinois. Why? Because there was this well-known pastor named D.L. Moody and this church called the Moody Church, and he was invited to speak. For those of you that may know this story, you'll know that his trip was his second of occasions to trip to Chicago. He had already come before, and it was a smashing success, so he was invited back to preach here in downtown Chicago and give the gospel. John Harper's story can be read about and heard in the title of the book, Titanic's Last Hero. His second trip to Chicago, Illinois, was on the boat that sunk the Titanic. While the iceberg was smashed into on that 14th of April, 1912, Harper, with his daughter and sister, went over to the lifeboats and got his children and family onto the boat, put their needs ahead of his own, which was just the start of a series of heroic events of a man who would demonstrate how the gospel took root in the heart and life of a person and saved, literally, all kinds of people. Before putting his daughter on the lifeboat, he knelt down, he kissed her, told her that he hopes to see her one day again in heaven. With his loved ones safely in this little small boat, Harper returned to the deck and he said, I want all of the women, children, and unsaved to get into these boats. As the ship broke in two and the icy waters became the reality for thousands of people, Harper was spotted swimming from person to person, telling them the gospel. Hey, brother, do you know Jesus Christ? He swam up to one young man and was clinging to some debris, this young man was, and Harper asked him, hey, are you saved? And he said, no, I am not. He tried right then and there to lead him to Christ, and this person said, no thanks, he refused. Harper then took off his life jacket and said, here, you're going to need this more than me. He then tried to lead him to faith again, and he refused. Harper then left and started swimming to other people. A few minutes later, he returned and saw the young man, but this time, after another conversation, the man repented of his sin and gave his faith and life to Jesus Christ. Many were rescued, many died. But that young man was one of those who not only was spared his physical life, his soul was saved as Harper, John Harper that is, swam from person to person until he eventually sunk and succumbed to the frigid waters and died. Reports are that his last words were, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, 1 John 3, 16 to 18 tells us, John Harper, how would he live such a life like that? And some of us would be encouraged, and I hope you are. The scale could be the cup of cold water, the washing the dishes when you get home, husbands, the helping put your kids to bed, the mowing the lawn, the caring for the little details around the church, the signing up to give a new family that just had a baby a gift card, the praying for people, 
all the way to giving your life. It doesn't matter how big or small. What matters is it's rooted in the true love of Jesus Christ. Believe, as Harper said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you'll not only be saved, I'm convinced you're going to love one another. And the Holy Spirit of God will compel you day after day and week after week to selflessly sacrifice your time, your money, your possessions for the good of those around you in sacrificial service. So believe, and then you will love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to pray now in the name of Jesus, the one who died in our place on the cross, laying down his life for us. And because of his sacrificial service, even now as we pray, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us to have assurance of our salvation. For those of us here that are not Christians, I pray that we would believe and be saved and have love flowing from our hearts and into our lives. But Lord, we especially want to pray for anyone here today that came in really insecure about whether or not God loves them. I pray that your spirit would abide in them. Your spirit will help them see that they can look not to their own hearts for assurance, but the objective nature of your unchanging character and the objective nature of your love for us in Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper now, lead us and guide us to assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.